Hey, I'm Zach, and one day I'm going to make movies, but right now I'm young, dumb, and not nearly as good-looking as my co-hosts. So with the help of... I'm Matthew. I'm Rodrigo. I'm Steven. I'm going to learn what makes a movie great by watching all the classics I've skipped over. So pop the corn and turn your cell phone to silent, because it's time for a new episode of Zach on Film. Putting a one-room play onto the screen, Alfred Hitchcock looks to add a new dimension to the murder thriller. Dial in for murder, and we will discuss it this week on Zach on Film. Hey, good job on that intro, Zach, hey, because you, you pretty much covered everything that are your main talking <laughs> Let, points yeah. of, of Dial in for Let's Murder. Let's go so, home. <laughs> um, dial in for murder, adapted yeah. from a stage play. Yeah, it really feels like I didn't. I can't remember if I actually read it before I watched the movie. I probably did, otherwise I might not have thought of it. But it felt like a play. It felt like a run one-room play. Uh, because probably, what, uh, 90%, 95% of this film takes place within a one-bedroom flat. Yes. And in the main yeah. living space. doesn't yeah, go. It, you never it, go into the kitchen. We get, oh, yeah, there's never. Yeah, I don't even know if there's a kitchen in this you, apartment. Yeah, there is, because they open up the door. He comes out one time serving tea to the cops. Oh, and by the time right. he opens the door, it says, oh, see, wow. there's bars. Like, yeah, like in a lot of plays, yeah. you don't, obviously you, you can move into the kitchen, but they mm-hmm. literally, like, like this is what they do in plays, right? It's like, yeah. as you can see, there are bars in the windows here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and we go into the bedroom once. Go in the bedroom once. Uh, we look outside the apartment into mm-hmm. the stairway and the open And then we have the events that take place at the party where he's calling her. Right. Yeah, that's that's about it. Yep. Which is interesting because, wow, what a terrible, you know, I mean, this is like, I know Hitchcock was working on another film and it went south and then uh, the studio is just like, yeah, sure, go ahead and make Dial in for Murder. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people really hail it as a great movie, but it's just like, okay, let's set up a camera and let's shoot this play. Okay, everybody go. Yeah, it's, it just felt really lazy. It's especially I don't. When did this come out? in like, the Pedigree of 54. Hitchcock. So this is this is way before Psycho, Psycho way before Search all of that stuff. Yep. Uh, that makes complete and total sense uh, because from what we've seen of Vertigo and uh, Psycho, especially, and and you know, Strange on the Train has some pretty technical shots. Also, Alfred Hitchcock really pushes the storytelling and audience manipulation through camera movement. Mm-hmm. Wasn't strangers on a train in 51. I thought it was, I'm, I'm looking this. up to see the list of things, but this is definitely before psycho. Cause psycho was really his last oh, yeah. big 60, uh, his last big piece. So when uh, we look at the birds came after psycho, man. strangers on a train, 1951. Yeah. If we look at it and I'm, I'm looking for the, for the, at the big list uh, mm-hmm. where we left off last time when we had Hitchcock, we had Mr. And Mrs. Smith came out in 41 Saboteur in 42, um, Notorious in 45, Rope in 48, um, Strangers on a Train, as Rodrigo mentioned, 51, Dial in for Murder came out in 54, and Rear Window, the movie that we're going to see here uh, shortly, also came out in 54, which I think is a, even though it is also essentially a stage play that's shot, it's done very differently, and so maybe it's a good compare and contrast in this case. Um, But yeah, so... uh, um, Dial in for murder came out in 54 and a lot of people just mark this as one of the great noir uh, type movies. And I don't no, know. We've certainly seen better noir. I think so. And second film than dial. I wouldn't even, it doesn't even feel, it doesn't look like a noir no. film. It doesn't Mm-mm. have that feeling except that, you know, weird. it is de- dealing with very dark themes. Sure. 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 sure Let's sure. kill my sure, wife sure. so I can get the insurance money mm-hmm. and I've got an alibi. 
they kind of set that up at the beginning of the movie where, where they're basically like, I have the plan for the perfect murder, murder. in Kansas. Um, <laughs> what I thought was interesting about how they set that up was we're introduced to the wife and to her lover yes. as the first people, and it felt like we weren't going to get a backstory. It was just like, these people aren't supposed to be together. They are. Watch them do whatever. It, if it, it was interesting that we didn't get a whole backstory about the characters, and then the husband comes on and goes on like a 10-minute diatribe about why he's going to do this and why he hates both these people. Yeah. Yeah. It's just an interesting. I have like I thought that was an interesting setup. Feels like stage play. Oh, absolutely. Uh, oh yeah, it totally does. Yeah, I mean that's um, to a certain degree a strength of it when compared to modern movies because a lot of modern movies are shot that, shot that way. You know, mm-hmm. if you're a fan of the long take, yeah, there's definitely a lot of that going on. Well, and so this is also be... because of that though some unmotivated camera movements yeah, yeah. as well. well. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But just to compare, because when we watch Rear Window, what what is, when does that come up? Uh, that's uh, not, coming up not in a while, um, which is a shame. But the thing uh, is, Rear Window is essentially this movie done in reverse, where instead of being the audience looking into this apartment, this movie is shot from an apartment looking out into a courtyard and looking at all the other drama going on Mm -hmm. in the apartments in that courtyard. And it's really a lot of times just single point of view. The the interesting thing about uh, Dial M for Murder is that it it really brings up, uh, I I think, a a very interesting point a point in in filmmaking and storytelling which is that your point of view character is going to become your point of view character kind of you're gonna start trying like as an audience when we're gonna start trying to empathize with them and this is the the character that we spend the most time with is the murderer right the, he's the only one whose full motivations we know he tells us his whole plan and then the story starts going starts unfolding like the guy is going to kill his wife and you're kind of rooting for nothing to go wrong, right? right. Your point of view well, character, you are, I well, your point of no, view character, like all absolutely. of the 100% of the tension is, is this going to get pulled off? Yep. Yeah. And that's is the he thing. going to get caught? Which means why would you feel tension if you don't empathize with the murderer? That's what you I'm saying. Do. You yeah. do empathize yeah, with the murderer absolutely. because you're kind of rooting for this murder to happen. Absolutely. Because, the, because he's because your point he, of view character. And he does paint the wife as a pretty horrible person. What mm-hmm. this is, actually, um, not that not that necessarily anybody Zach's age is going to uh, know what I'm talking about, but what this movie is, is an episode of Columbo. Yeah. Like, if you've Ooh, ever watched yeah. Columbo, that's what happens. You see the murderer or whatever, the robbery mm-hmm. or whatever happen, you know who the murderer is, and the whole movie you are like kind of tensely rooting for them to throw mm-hmm. off Columbo. Yeah. Um, that's kind of what's happening here. Yeah. I, I think the interesting thing and in, in the why the tension is built in this story, and again, this is not Alfred Hitchcock written, this is directed, um, is the fact that the husband says, I've got the plan for the perfect murder. And the co-conspirator is like, oh, there's no such thing as perfect murder. And even the writer, the yeah. the um, mystery writer, yeah, mm-hmm. the f- person that she's having an affair with, 
It says, oh, no, there's there's no such thing as a perfect murder because somebody's going to make a mistake. Right. And so what engages the audience then from that point forward, both in a stage play and this movie is where is he going to trip up? Right. And you almost mm-hmm. miss the point where he trips up in this piece, unless you're really paying attention and with the with the key switch. Right. Um, is there such a thing as being able to create the perfect murder? You have a plot for the perfect murder, Zach? No, because I don't think about such things. <laughs> uh, apparently Alfred Hitchcock does, though, because what Strange on the Train came out right before this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's two back to back movies of trying to pull off the perfect murder, murder in his films. Uh, which, I mean, murder is pretty much, I kind of think, uh, Hitchcock's baby. He kind of, he kind of just rides that train. Everyone's dying left and right. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know if it was a perfect murder, we would never hear about it. Right. Well, you also need to watch rope, I think too, cause it's also about the perfect, perfect murder. Really? Well, yeah, because there's a dead body in, in a box during a dinner party. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. It's like clue. Uh-huh. Yeah. Is that uh, the thing is like the perfect murderer would be one that be, you don't know about yeah and and would be hugely based on all of the circumstances surrounding everyone involved right mm-hmm. so it's like there probably is a perfect like if by the perfect murderer you say could i get away with killing someone yes i'm sure there's a lot of drifters and people who don't have any family members mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. who are like you know the the weird hoarders in their town that like everybody's scared of or like or nobody wants to interact with or whatever there's lots of people on the peripheries of of society that you that somebody could kill and nobody would find out and then more importantly nobody would care about well but again the perfect murder the perfect murder for a uh beautiful ingenue Mm -hmm. that becomes a lot more problematic Oh, you're saying if you kill a drifter, nobody cares about that person. Right. Oh, okay. I see That's what you're saying. I thought you cop. were talking about hiring the drifter to go kill somebody no, no, because yeah. who, you know, just a drifter. Right. So, yeah, what I'm saying is it's, there are like, that's going to be dependent on who is being murdered, mm-hmm. what their connection to the murderer or, uh, I guess, intellectual architect of the crime right. is. Um, so it, it, is there a perfect murder? Probably. Um, could I come up with one only if I also got to design the persons of the play? <laughs> Matthew? Well, it's, it's a, it's a tridented point for me. First, the perfect murder is the one you get away with. Second, I'm a little nervous at how well thought out Rodrigo's thought process on this is. And third and most important, I'm not going to give you this idea, even <laughs> if I had it. But I think that when it comes to murder as a concept in a story, yeah, I think that we could put together a lot of situations. But the problem is they feel kind of contrived in some situations. My favorite um, actually is another Hitchcock film. Have you guys ever seen The Trouble with Harry? Yes. It starts with a murder mystery where everybody thinks they did it. Mm-hmm. I kind of I love that twist on it. And this actually... This does that to a point as well. I think story-wise, for purposes of making an entertaining picture and or radio play and or comic book, The Perfect Murder is one that gets your attention, makes you interested in either finding the killer, seeing the killer that we know get punished, or, or most importantly, seeing some sort of closure like, say, say the character being murdered is played by Shia LaBeouf. 
You can end the movie right there. I'm happy. I'm going to go home uh. happy. I don't, I don't need to know who killed him. I can just go, yes, all right, we're fine, we're good. That's a mean thing to say. There's the, you know, this idea of if you as a writer can construct the perfect murder mm-hmm. and have it all thought out on paper, then you've got a great story that's really going to gauge the audience because the problem and there's I was trying to track down the, the movie. I can't I can't find it. But um, kids are in a film school and the teacher instructs them come up with the perfect murder. Mm-hmm. And so throughout the movie, I think that they're constructing the perfect murder and then they're carrying it out to prove that it is the perfect murder. I think that's how the, the movie goes. Um, but the idea is there are so many plot holes in these people that are killing their spouses or loved ones or strangers or whoever that the killer is always going to be found. And the challenge that the instructor gives to the students is, can you devise the perfect murder? Because then you have something that the audience goes away either Mm -hmm. very angry with or very satisfied with that the killer got caught. And I think, you know, talented Mr. Ripley might be one of those that is an example of somebody that gets away with a perfect murder. I think, um, weirdly, I think Double Indemnity is actually Mm -hmm. a movie that kind of has the perfect murder. Yeah, yeah. But only... Because of this, like law, yeah. Because of the very complex premise of it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you and if you consider, uh, spoiler alert, the the way to get the to to commit the perfect murder is first to go, to go to jail for ten years. Um, I don't know how long she was in jail. Probably not ten years, but yeah, it's like then it does become complicated. Yeah, and that's another good noir movie if you haven't seen that uh, Zach, by Billy Wilder. And it was it's been remade a couple of times. I think. Uh, I was like, because I think I have seen something where. I think Angelina Jolie or something is in is in one of the remakes. Let me look here. I felt like I I saw the beginning of a film one time with my dad, where a girl kills someone, gets sentenced to death. Yes, and they inject her with the lethal thing, but it actually wasn't the lethal thing. Oh, she doesn't die. Am I thinking of something else? There is a thing that if you are put on the electric chair or you're given the, uh, you know, a lethal injection and it doesn't take, you get to walk away free. Uh. Well, this must have been something different because they like intentionally. That's not in the movie, but I mean, I think that's the way it's supposed to be in real life. If you are electrocuted and it doesn't take, you go away free. One of the, and again, this is completely fictional. One of the plot points of Oz, the TV show set in prison, was that one of the characters was this nice old man who murdered somebody in a fit of passion 50 years ago. They electrocuted him. It didn't take. And he spent life in prison surrounded by these hardened killers. And he's just high and Bob. It's a great moment. I'm sorry. I said double out. indemnity. I'm in double jeopardy, which is oh, yeah, uh, the yeah. Ashley Judd movie. That's what, that's what I'm thinking of. Ashley right. Judd. Double indemnity is the one with the insurance policy, yep, I yep, think. Yep, yep. Yeah. Um, Mike TV was a fan of that one, as I recall. So, yeah, this idea of can you construct the perfect murder that really is an exercise in can you construct a perfect story mm-hmm. that is devoid of plot holes, I think, is, a, is an interesting thing to toy around with, if, if not a, a bit morbid. Sure. Right. Well, I mean, um, it is interesting in the film when we're getting down to the last part and the lover slash writer comes in and is telling the husband what he should do to get away with it. Right. Right. And, and well, to get the, story, the, to get the, to get the wife off. Yeah, yeah, to get the wife off. To, Plausible deniability in a lot yeah, of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is, it, it, was is, an, it was an... It felt really weird. It is. When it it's happened. like... It's a really interesting moment like uh, it's it's hard to explain it's hard to describe mm-hmm. this thing where a character that that might be one of the most unique things about this movie right a character 
accidentally figures it out in the process yes. of trying to incriminate someone else mm-hmm. for the sake of someone else. Like mm-hmm. it, yeah. it is, um, it. I think it feels a little Convenient. contrived yeah. because yeah. he's because he gets it bit by bit, right? Blow by yeah. blow, he gets the whole mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Nothing deviates. But it makes you wonder, though. Again, we it's revealed that the writer and the uh, detective don't know each other, mm-hmm. but up to a point until he's walking back into that building uh, at the end and knocking on the door and the detective is like, what are you doing here? Kind of thing. It almost feels like those two are working in cahoots to really uncover what was really going on up until that point. And yeah. then they realize that, no, there's no connection between these two yeah. because you're right. It, it seems so forced. And it, it felt like they were trying to say, Hey, look how smart this Sure. Like the actual the husband is like look how uh-huh. smart our main character is that he well, actually did figure it out before even the person who actually writes the murder mysteries and how yep. the perfect way to do I it don't is. think that they stressed enough that he was a murder mystery writer they kept saying writer but if yeah. they would have thrown in the word murder mystery writer it would have hit at home a little bit more yeah, yeah. they talked just briefly a few mm-hmm. times about oh you you write about killings in your books yeah, that could be a lot of things yeah. um I think that kind of was a little misstep in the story. Um, but I was really disappointed in the method that this was shot to a point. Yeah. Except that you have to remember that this was one of the first movies that was using 3d technology. Right. It felt like a slower talking Kevin Smith, early Kevin Smith (laughs) film is kind of what it feels like. And then you learn they shot this in 3D, and you're yeah. like, what in the world? 3D. Which would have been really weird, because this is not a movie that lends itself to 3D, especially when you're looking at House of Wax and others that sure. were the pioneer yeah. 3D films. This one, yeah. I mean, there are some depth moments in there, you know, where you've got some depth of field staggered out on mm-hmm. the screen, but I just can't imagine. Oh, it's, Yeah, they didn't. Yeah. They didn't do any, you know, throwing spears at the camera or right. that, that metal storm thing where somebody rides straight up to it. When when I found out this was I shot mean, in Vertigo 3D. Vertigo would have been a better movie to be shot in 3D. Than yeah, this. or even Everybody Rear Window. Yeah. 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 You can do Rear Window in 3D because he's doing, you know, the zoom effects in your 3D. But I, don't, I, I didn't realize until you said this that this movie was shot in 3D, having watched it today uh, for the first time, by the way. But... I, I, I just I can't wrap my mind around it. All of the hallmarks that I expect from a 3D movie, not here. It's almost like the because Marvel and kind of the way 3D's been used in the major studios now is just to add that depth. It's not a whole lot of things flying at you. There's usually like one or two things where it's like, oh, look at that, whatever coming at your face. But a lot right. of it's just a depth thing. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now today, Start I mean, so the, water in your face. The process was called Natural Vision 3D, and Hitchcock. This movie didn't make a whole lot of money. It made no. 2.7 million dollars in North America. Hitchcock uh, said this in in the uh, about 3D. He said it's a nine day wonder, and I came in on the ninth day. Yeah, uh, meaning that he came in way too late for this process. Almost like many, you know, what happened after James Cameron released, um, you know, uh, Avatar. Avatar. Everybody's like, oh yeah, we're going to jump on this, and everybody's like, no, 3D just really isn't the thing. And now yeah. people are having to really explore how do you tell a story with depth and also tell a story at the same time. Yeah, it was really interesting. Uh, when I was doing reading uh, for this film, after I watched it, um, I, f- I stumbled onto an editorial piece from, I think it was The Wrap, mm-hmm. and it was blasting Roger Ebert 
who Ebert was coming down on 3D and the way it was being used is about 2010 or 11. Mm-hmm. And the way that 3D was being used and how it's not, how it's something it's it's just here, it's a flash in the pan, it's coming, right. it's going to leave again, just like it did multiple times before. And this writer is, the, I can't remember the title, it was like, why Roger Ebert is obsolete and why you should think so too. Oh, I think I've, I think I've read at least bits and pieces of that. He was insane. Before, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I'm. This movie is not a movie that should have been in 3D. No, that is a very strange idea. It, it doesn't belong in that. This used a polarization process, which means each lens is basically polarized to the light at 90 degrees. So mm-hmm. one eye is getting part of the wavelength and the other eye is getting the other part of the wave. <laughs> and um, it, it just doesn't lend itself. I still think today that – did you see Guardians of the Galaxy in 3D? No. Matthew, did you see it in 3D? Uh-huh. Did you did you think that it worked in 3D Guardians of the Galaxy? I think that the parts of it that I recall being actively 3D were nice little Phillips, but I don't know that it necessarily enhanced the major portion of the film. I mm-hmm. like the beginning, the dance in the rain. I, uh, that's the point where I remember the 3D really being a thing. And also uh, Yondu's moment on Xandar. Mm-hmm. When Yondu, when Yondu goes all wah hot John Wayne on all those guys, that moment, clearly, I'm like, yeah, the 3D kind of enhanced that moment. But really, for me, it was just sort of a hat on a hat. It wasn't some, really something that detracted from the film at all. I was glad because a lot of times, you know, the 3D, I think it's going to be muddy and dark and weird. This managed to maintain the light and the color. And then a few moments, you're just like, oh, crap, that's flying right in yeah, my head. I think the last time I saw 3D was the first Thor movie. And I was impressed by the way that they used the 3D in certain sequences there. But overall, it didn't really add to the presence of I am watching something yeah. through this window on a screen. Yeah. That's in- the problem. Interestingly, it, you know, there so 3D becomes a thing and there's all these problems with it to a certain degree because – when you're just taking things and then throwing them at the audience, you know, it feels like a gimmick. You have problems. You have problems with transitions. You have problems with, like, even pants. It's like, oh, yeah, we want these plants to be up front. But what happens when they pan out of the camera? They just, like, cease to exist, mm-hmm. right? Even though they're up here or whatever. So there's all these issues. And a lot of the majority of these issues are solved by just being like, okay, well, we'll just treat 3D like it's like you're looking through this window, right? right into right. this 3D world. And it's like, cool. But then, what's the point? Well, that's what I mean, I'm saying. It doesn't, kind of, it doesn't, it doesn't the, add that necessary yeah. depth. The solution to the problem, how do we make 3D into something that's manageable, is to kind of make it little more than set dressing, right? right. I think the first movie that I saw where I thought about it, I was like, oh, yeah, this was 3D done right, was Up. Mm. And that's how Up oh. is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Up there's almost nothing that comes at your face, even though there's lots of things that could have come at your face because there's like mm-hmm. dogs and biplanes in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And the way that they handle it was to, uh, you know, do it. That's <laughs> a weird movie. Do you remember Viewmaster? Uh, no. Yes, I remember, I remember Viewmaster. That's how I like That's, my 3D. Yeah, Herbie, Herbie the Love Bug looked great in Viewmaster 3D. Yeah. Just stereoscopic Oh, oh you mean the, like, yeah, the, the little, little clicky thing? Yeah. I thought you meant like the... Because I was like, I I knew there was a Viewmaster movie coming up. Oh, no, no, no. But I never saw it if it did. No, I'm talking about the true. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I remember, yeah, I remember the Viewmaster. Yes. Yeah, but the discs. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah, basically great. the same thing if you go back to like the 1920s when they had the stereoscopic mm-hmm, trick mm-hmm, pictures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's the same thing. Yeah, but the thing is that they're creating depth away from your eye, yep. not to your eye. Mm-hmm. And right. 
people don't understand that, that, yeah, that's where, and if you've got stuff that has parallax, that's what makes the 3D work in that depth. Uh, when I went and saw Green Hornet, I went and saw it in 3D because that was the only one that was available. Mm-hmm. And I just remember that they did this pan across uh, or this uh, track across this desk. And it's like the, fo- the foreground objects were really right up against that that presence. And then everything else was behind. It. I was like, wow, that is really good. No. Oh, what did they say? Because yeah. I was distracted by that's the, the that's 3D. That's the problem is that any time you actually start doing... 3D. I feel like if you're throwing at your head, if you're creating weird distance, if particles are shooting out, okay, it's so distracting from the story. It's not adding to. It's not like a mm-hmm. camera move that's telling you something. It's right. not a light that's motivated or anything. It's just like this cool fancy thing that, frankly, again, just it's makes ticket prices more expensive. <laughs> it is there to try to compete with video games with their high 3d graphics it's there to compete with netflix cable television terrestrial television your cell phone your itunes whatever that is why it exists because they're trying to compete and find a reason to draw the audiences in saying this is something you can't get from your iphone this isn't something you can get from Mm -hmm. your xbox one and it became this is only in the theater yeah it became clear that's what it was when when they tried to push 3d televisions and 3d yes. sport and those bombed i don't yeah. know anyone who has a 3d television yeah yeah and so now you're only watching movies in 3d in the theater yeah no and I, I don't even know people who actually just like i want to go watch the 3d no one i know says that i'm sometimes i'm curious because i'll say i think i want to you know if i could go back and see guardians of the galaxy again and i mean i could i mean sure it's still one um, I would like to see it in 3D. I would like to do a compare and contrast and say, is there anything from my personal point of view that added to that experience? Mm-hmm. I've seen mm-hmm. it in 2D. Let me watch it in 3D and see if there's something special from that. I'm going to bet no. No. I, I don't know if I don't know if this has changed or just my my own experience or just my own eyes. But like, there's something about the um, the meshing of the um, uh, the polarization stuff. Mm-hmm. That bl- like really blurs the action. It really seems to me that like three D movies are like particularly bad about that. Yeah. Um, but it might just be that like I the last because I actually I think the last three D movie that I saw was the first Thor, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't know anything that's happening, you guys. Just because like when the action got fast enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. everything just blurred. I, to well, and you have to remember that when the polarized lenses, you're losing some of the light, yeah, right? That, that's, a, that's hitting. You're so you're really having to boost up your projector. Oh, man. And if the if the theater doesn't want to boost up their their luminance because or their brightness because of uh, uh, bulb issues, then it's that, gonna be look, look dark and muddy. And I just a, I just remember that's actually not the last movie that I saw in 3D. The last movie that I saw in 3D was Avengers, and there oh. was something on the screen. Oh. There was a spot on the screen, oh, yeah, yeah. and everything's in 3D, but there's a spot on the screen, yeah, which that's a causes this like 2D mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. So it's like, have you seen that uh, that drawing that looks like it's like a a, a square tube like it's kind of like a tube that goes around but then when you look at the other end of it there's three tubes at the yeah, end yeah, yeah. that's yes. what it looks like like you look at one side of it is like 3d <laughs> you look at kobe smolder's face half 3d half 2d and i was like i am going to puke all over the person in front of me yeah, yeah. if that stain doesn't go away yeah. no and it doesn't and it didn't no nope 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 i will say that the 3d in guardians of the galaxy 
worked for Widget, who uh, actually has issues with convergence. She, uh, we actually had to have a little bit of eye surgery when she was a tiny, tiny baby mm-hmm. because her eyes weren't pointing in the same direction quite yet. And so, you know, having whatever process they have now work for her, where traditional, you know, 3D hasn't, was kind of neat, kind of interesting at least. Um, when we would take her to the eye doctor, the 3D effects never worked for her. Yeah, she some can't people, and some people, some people can't see 3D. Yeah. But this, I, I whatever what version they use in Guardians yeah. of the Galaxy did work. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know if the, if it's something different or if it's just, you know, the particular glasses we had that day. But it was interesting to see her react to that. And I'm wondering if maybe that's not our market when, you know, we're going to make a movie well, in 3D. Well, I mean, you know, so if you're going to pull a kid away from um, Oculus Rift in the next five years, you're going to have to figure out a better way. No, of, no you can't. Of drawing nothing, kid into the theater. Nothing's going to pull that's a kid saying. away from Oculus Rift. I can't pull my kid. Everything. I cannot pull my kid away from freaking Minecraft. Yeah. Unless yeah. I say. Hey, did you know that there's a Minecraft patch for your video game or yeah. for this show or something? Then you'll pay attention. So, yeah, maybe we are the maybe we aren't the target market for 3D, but the uh, if they're thinking that the younger kids are the target, they're missing they're missing the boat. <laughs> but babies love 3D. Here's the good thing. Well, really, young children aren't supposed to watch 3D movies. Yeah, that's an issue. It's an issue with the 3DS, and and that's the interesting thing is that. Portable and and television size 3D technology is available. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, 3DS, 3DS. I, yeah, there's a 3DS. Uh, even like at the uh, Flying J's that we hit yeah. uh, on the way to Nertacular, there was at least one that just had a big screen and it just had like a 3D like Powerade mm-hmm. coming out of you. No glasses necessary. Mm-hmm. It just has that polarization effect mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. on it. Yeah, I mean it's basically a 3DS type screen. Yeah. It's like you can see it right in 3D. Yep. So pretty soon, if somebody is putting their their head towards it, then you know you're not going to only have it in the theater. I think, I don't know. I don't think this is a. I don't think this is a medium for storytelling. I don't think 3D is a medium for storytelling. And certainly, this movie Dial in for Murder is a perfect example of that. I, the 3D should be used to attract attention. You're walking past sure. the you're walking past the uh, the refreshment aisle, and this big old bottle is sticking out, going rod. Like a right giant 3D. shark comes mm-hmm. out and yes, tries, and to, tries to bite you. That'd be a perfect reason to use 3D for yeah. advertisement. Sure, but uh, for engagement uh, stories, I don't I don't see it. I know there's going to be a lot of detractors to that. And that's I, I, fine. I, again, I think like the real interesting thing about what we've seen about 3D is that they were like 3D is going to revolutionize everything, and like. The way that they've gone to using 3D is in the most subtle way possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like the only way that 3D works without making your audience puke or taking you out of it is by meshing it with everything else, which is kind of like what happened with color, right? Yeah. It's like mm-hmm. there were mo- yeah, there were movies that were like blah 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 in your face, but then eventually <laughs> you just make everything color. You mute down the colors mm-hmm. so that things look normal, mm-hmm. and then it's like, hey, look at that! It actually helps in storytelling. Now you don't have to have a character explain that this thing is red. Why is this book red? Like, nope, now you yeah. can actually just see that the book is red. Yeah. The nice thing, though, about 3D, nice thing about Alfred Hitchcock in accepting to use 3D in this movie, um, is the fact that filmmakers are not afraid to try new technologies if they think it suits uh, the purpose. Sure. And we kind of talked about that when we talked about Psycho and some of the other stuff that Alfred Hitchcock 
seem to be one to embrace the technology of the day or there be sound or like mm-hmm. putting sound, which just sounds crazy. Like, I'm going to decide to put sound in my movies. Yeah. Or or even trying 3D for Dial in for Murder, uh, which got me thinking um, we're kind of in this age where film stock is like an extinct species almost. Yeah, in fact, the studios, a, yeah, the studios have had to get together and figure out a way to keep Kodak alive yeah. so that they can keep getting film stock. Yeah. It's being kept alive by kind of like five filmmakers like mm-hmm. abrams nolan uh ryan johnson and tarantino mm-hmm. uh, they're big proponents for film they don't want to shoot anything else they kind of refuse to tarantino called my generation stupid and some other big things that cons saying he hopes that the future the next generation after mine will embrace true film and go back. Yeah, what are these hipsters like George Lucas and Steven Spielberg yeah. doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Idiots. <laughs> uh, so I thought, do you think Hitchcock would have started shooting on some red cameras or some Aries or... One, one yeah. thousand percent. Yeah. No question oh, yeah. about it. If somebody had gone on to Alfred Hitchcock and said, I have a way in which you can record <laughs> your entire movie in one card... Yeah, that is this big. Oh, yeah, yeah. He would have been like, "All right, great." Like, I I do not think that he would, especially with because cameras nowadays can replicate the look of film so closely, mm-hmm. yeah. and they can replicate the look of film so closely, and and that's about ten times closer than they need to for the average person to accept it as film, right? A lot People talk a lot about MP3s. Yeah. MP3 is a highly compressed format. If you want to listen to your music in the best quality possible, then you go and you get a wax cylinder um, and you listen to that, right? And, you know, you basically you get, you get vinyl. But for everybody who just wants to hear that new pop song, an MP3 is going to be good enough, mm-hmm. even though it does cut a significant amount of information out of a song. Well, For movies, yeah. it's not even that bad. It's not even that bad yeah. of a mm-hmm. drop-off. If you're watching a movie on Blu-ray, if you're watching a movie um, on a digital cinema screen, you are getting practically the film experience. It is almost, you almost cannot tell the difference. Mm-hmm. You know, Hitchcock in Rope, and this is an interesting movie you should kind of take a look at too, Hitchcock uses these super long takes mm-hmm. where basically it's just, we're panning the camera around. Um, and there are times when he reaches the end of a 20 minute reel where he does do a setup of the camera in a different place, but then kind of runs that camera for 20 minutes from that point of view and panning and zooming and dollying and all these other things that he needs to do to tell the story. Going to what Rodrigo said, if you went up to Alfred Hitchcock and said, Hey Hitch, here's a GoPro camera. Oh, yeah. It will shoot two hours worth of video He'll be going, yeah, give me it. He'd go back and, and well, he'd go back and reshoot Psycho with nothing but <laughs> GoPro cameras uh, in the shower scene. That's, I mean, he would be sure. able to do that. He'd be able to do it in one take. Um, First, he'd be like, do I still get to torture icy blondes for the entire shoot? Yes, Hitch, you're good. Oh, right, I'll do that. So, yeah, I think he would most definitely embrace uh, mm. digital technology. And the way that this movie, Dial in for Murder, uses rear screen projection uh, yeah, for every outdoor Which is scene. Really weird. Um, God, it's just so. He would embrace digital technology, where he's like, "Oh, he would be." He, 
Alfred Hitchcock would approach filmmaking the way George Lucas approaches filmmaking today. Mm-hmm. Oh, we can go in and edit this and add this and put in a bunch of people standing around over here. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this solidly, but let's do it on the cheap. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and it's not, I think there's this idea that uh, using cheaper methods cheapens your film and that's not true no um it cheapens your film a lot more i think to say put product placement in it or something like that right i I mean it it depends what you mean by cheapen but i think this automatic idea that just because you're using something that's affordable makes it worse i mean a great example of kind of like the opposite mentality of that is like why are so many why were so many indie movies shot in black and white you know well into the advent of color black and white film was cheaper Mm -hmm. but nobody was getting on those guys cases about why they were doing something on the cheap there are some there are some perception issues though when you think cheap because if you said hey i just shot my uh this movie and i shot it for five thousand dollars people are going well it's gonna be a crap movie and certainly if you were to show up on set with a little camera like this this little palm camera that i have Mm -hmm. yeah People aren't going to take you seriously. They're going to say, well, that's a consumer camera. This guy isn't serious about his work. So therefore, we're not going to take this project seriously. And people aren't going to give their 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 all. So there is this weird notion that somehow a bigger looking, quote unquote, more professional gear um, makes the product or the project that much more important. There's that weird perception in that. And and when when DV video first came out, um, I was in Atlanta and we went to Sony Electronics to uh, to go to one of their – they were hosting our monthly meeting. And they were unveiling basically their DV cameras and they were showing them to everybody. And people in the audience were just freaking going nuts because they're like, oh, no, you've got to have these big giant cameras. And they're like, no, we've been giving these cameras, essentially the VX1000. Right. Uh, we've been giving them to CNN reporters. They've been shooting for the last six months with these cameras and the only thing that we've changed is we had to make the camera slightly bigger because of the weight yeah. uh, was too oh, light. Lens. Well, mm-hmm. just the weight of the camera was too light for these photographers that have been used to a 50-pound uh, camera that yeah. they had to add yep. a little bit more weight to it so it could steady it up. But they said, you've been seeing this on television. Yeah, I, I, it's it's really great to see all of that because um, it, it's great that we are now at the point where cameras are too small. Like yeah, they can yeah, keep yeah. shrinking mm-hmm. them. But it's like, for example, my camera that I use at my uh, real world job, the lens is almost heavier than the camera. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it's. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Um, it, you know, the, the, the lens should could be 10,000, like a thousand times heavier mm-hmm. than the camera because it could be even lighter than it is. Mm-hmm. But it's like. When I first got that camera, it was a problem because I kept like falling forward because <laughs> I was used yeah. to standing a certain way because I expected the weight of the camera to be even. I've seen cameras that are that small that basically, I mean, uh, that are basically those mm. new XLR type mm. uh, uh, um photo cameras yeah. that can just shoot video yeah. they can just shoot high def video yeah. steven has so, one well i've got the um, i've got a canon i've got a canon mark three canon mark two i've got so got some gopros but the new sony a7 camera oh it's just what the heck man i yeah. mean it's a great like, looking camera but a, it's like it's like looks like a little consumer pocket camera if you want and the black magic same way if you want to shoot that and steady it with your shoulder you need to buy a mount for it, mm-hmm. you yeah. know. The I, and I've seen that before. It it basically looks like uh, if you took a shotgun's like butt yeah, yeah, and yeah. you just empty it out, 
Yeah. So that it's just like the the silhouette of it, and then there's like a little tiny camera at the end of it. That's yeah. what they look like. It looks silly. Now, here's the other thing, and the whole point of this conversation is, yes, we can have really tiny cameras like this GoPro 3 that I have here. Um, you can have a really tiny camera that shoots fantastic video. If you don't yep. believe me, go yep. over to GoPro site or go over to yeah. Vimeo where people are posting GoPro videos nonstop and you're going to see some magnificent oh. stuff. Some of it you don't even know that a shot with a GoPro. You've seen it. Where uh, it if helps. you've seen any uh, any extreme sports mm-hmm. type video oh, yeah. from yeah. a point of view thing in the past, what, five, ten years? Mm-hmm. It's probably yeah. a GoPro. Yeah. And I'm pretty Here's, sure they use it in Amazing Spider-Man too. Yeah, they did. A <laughs> yeah. lot of the New York yeah. scenes like stuff, the, uh, the Times Square chasings. stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think the, the entirety thing, of VHS is shot on a GoPro too. The, um, the problem, or the Benefit and problem arises in that if I ever wanted to get an establishing shot, and a great way to get an establishing shot is to do a flyover of a city or the cars driving up into the mountain. So you're following the car up the twisty road and everything. In the past, you had to get a giant helicopter. Right. You know, I yeah. mean, you had to go a get helicopter. a helicopter with a very expensive mount, and you had to go spend a day shooting. Today, you can go get something like the DJI Phantom. And you can mount a GoPro to the bottom of it, and with and that's the like, that's a drone. Basically. It's a little drone. Uh, yeah. drone. Yeah, it's a it's a sure. quadcopter is its right. official designation. But I think sure. people like to think of drone because it's it's unmanned. Um, but now I can go out for less than three thousand dollars, buy this quadcopter with the GoPro and the transmitter, so I can. Uh, view what the camera's doing. It's got a gimbal on the bottom which stabilizes it and I can tilt it up and down to get the shot that I want. In fact, I've even got a, a software program where I can essentially program the quadcopter to go and do what I want it to do. So if I want it to fly to the end of the street, pause for 30 seconds, turn south and go that way for you know another half mile and then return and shoot that entire way, I can do it. And it's great for filmmakers because now instead of renting a helicopter for $20,000 in yeah. the day... I can go find somebody with one of these mm-hmm. quadcopters and go get my shot in 20 minutes and be done and save myself a crap ton of money. The problem arises is that um, the FAA is basically saying, oh, these are things are a threat. And the FCC is trying to get into it as well to where if I'm a hobbyist, I can go out and fly this around and do whatever I want with it. The minute that I go over to a car lot, use car dealer or a regular car dealer and say, hey, wouldn't it be cool if one of your shots for your local commercial has this flyover of all your cars. The minute I do that and charge for that, suddenly it becomes illegal for me to fly that quadcopter. Sure. And that's there's a lot of back and forth going on with the government right now and filmmakers, especially because filmmakers are like, you don't understand how this is going to yep. make these movies um, cheaper and allow us to do a lot more if you release some of these silly regulations. Now, and I understand some of those. The, it's because the technology... Is, is, is young, is right? Too new. Yeah. yeah, right. People so are you, you get the same thing. It. Like someday, people will be driving around with Google Glass-like devices mm-hmm. while, while driving in their car and absorbing some amount of data in the process. Probably right. some sort of driving type app or something like mm-hmm. that, where you can just see your speedometer in your eyeball and not yeah. have to look down. Right? It'll make driving safer. But right now, people are talking about that. Can't should people be allowed to drive while we're in Google Glass? Well. No, because the technology is too new. Nobody knows mm-hmm. what's happening. Right, right, right. And you don't want to be the state where somebody dies because of that. Well, and the problem and the problem is that there are people who, and this is the problem with any new technology, they use it for purposes that, um, you know, I'd say use it for purposes it's not intended for. It's intended to fly around. Um, but the problem is they're using it for 
purposes that can cause problems. So like uh, Yellowstone and Yosemite National Parks have banned the quadcopters, even though that's a great place to shoot the quad, yeah. shoot with the quadcopters. Has it been all national parks? Yeah. Uh, because people have been flying them and they are noisy, but they disturb the buffalo and the national uh, animals and somebody crashed it into one of the hot springs mm-hmm. in uh, uh, Yosemite. And so people are upset about that. Man, that'd have been awesome footage. Oh, I bet it was. Well, not crashing into the <gasps> if it would have got into the hot spring in the but... middle air by a, like a geyser. Yeah, yeah that would have been kind of awesome. neat. But I mean, there's some stuff. I mean, if you go online, there's some fantastic, beautiful footage shot with one of these uh, quadcopters flying over Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. and it's beautiful. But you wouldn't be able to get a helicopter that low without disturbing oh, yeah. the shot. Mm-hmm. So we run into these issues where new technology is great, but because it is so new. People's initial reaction to it is always going to be fear, fear, yeah, and and concern. And I and I in this case, especially because I've invested in two of these things, I'm upset because I know how to fly. Mm-hmm. I'm not crashing it into people. I'm not using it to spy on people. Somebody in their backyard laying out sunbathing. I'm not going out for that. I'm I'm doing it for real. Per- and of course, the, the other group of people who are upset about this are the. Uh, uh, People that do the farm sprays, the Dow. Oh, oh. Um, crop dusters? Crop, not crop dusters. They do like the they, actual people that like Dow uh, chemical oh. are against yeah. these because um, geoscience people have been using these to measure stuff from the air. Oh. And mm. the first places that it made that they made it illegal to fly these was over farm property mm. and feedlots because they didn't want people going out and doing that and saying, well, look what the what these chemicals are doing uh, to the ground and those quality. kind of things so yeah, yeah it's our, our, our governor was just at a, a, a farm around this area talking with people who had a, a quadcopter and seeing how they're using it to integrate it into their farm business and he was okay with that i don't know how it turned out i just know what happened he probably <laughs> called it the work <laughs> nah. of the devil and yeah i mean you stone them yeah. or you're, you're always you're always gonna have uh people who fight that sort of thing because they're concerned of the impact that it's going to have on their business mm-hmm. i mean there are uh People who are fighting real scientific evidence of <laughs> climate uh, and, uh, you know, greenhouse gases and their effect. Yeah. Oh, I forgot to keep coughing. But, you know, it's like and they're fighting it because it hurts their current immediate bottom yeah. line. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, you just hope that that stuff eventually will fall by its own weight. Th- right. So the good thing is we saw Kevin Spacey. And we talked about this on Zach on film uh, months ago. Kevin Spacey got up in front of. um Cable cable operators, uh, or yeah, some was, some cable news or not news, just cable TV something, and was basically saying, "Hey, you need to embrace change that Netflix is going that Netflix is bringing." When he's talking about a House mm-hmm. of Cards, and I honestly think that if Hitchcock were alive today with his pedigree, he would be one of the people in front of these technological changes. And in fact, lobbying, almost like what Spielberg and Lucas came out and said um, a while ago about the movie theater going experience is going to drastically change in the next mm-hmm. 10 years. Well, here's the thing. If if uh, Alfred Hitchcock was around and making and still doing projects today, he would be on Netflix and also on TV and also in movie theaters mm-hmm. because that man was so prolific. Yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't <laughs> stop him. Like he would be in your phones, on YouTube, mm-hmm. on Vimeo. He would oh. be everywhere. Oh, yeah, he probably because he made three movies per second. All up in HBO. Remember when Spike Lee shot that commercial on the iPhone? Mm-hmm. Uh, when that or the short movie on iPhone? Alfred Hitchcock would have been ahead of him on that. There's that. Oh, was was that thing that like um, BMW commercial? No, I was gonna say that Ron Howard thing that was like around center around uh, a camera, like shooting stuff on a camera and oh, then yeah, like yeah. putting a movie together through that. 
Um, yeah, that that yeah, that online wasn't a contest, but it was just like an yeah, online yeah, experiment. it was like oh, yeah. yeah, it was like you shoot a bunch of cool stuff, and then Ron Howard is going to do something based mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they just did that BMW commercial where they shot it all on an iPad and then edited it on the iPad inside the car. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Anything else you want to say about uh, Dial M for Murder, Zach, or shall um, we get out of here? Let me look at the things I wrote down really quick. Notes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> nope. That's it. I would just like to say this episode is brought to you by, in part by Major Spoilers VIP members around the world. Thank you for your support at MajorSpoilers.com and the Major Spoilers Podcast Network. If you'd like to become a bronze, silver, gold member VIP. Whoa. That was words I didn't get right. Bronze, silver, or gold VIP member. Go to members.majorspoilers.com and sign up today. Thank you in advance. Uh, anything else? Uh, this movie is out on Blu-ray if anybody wants to get that. Uh, yes. It came out in 2012. And if they want to pick it up, they nice. can head over to majorspoilers.com. Click on that Amazon.com link. Yes. And uh, you can purchase it there. We'll have a link right there in the show notes for this episode that you can click and uh, get to that if you want to purchase it as well. Absolutely. And next week... We will be talking the day the Earth stood still. I'm going to assume the first one. Yes, the very first one. All not right. The, uh, not the Keanu Reeves one. Not the Keanu Reeves one. All right. We're going to be watching that next week on Zach on